Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show, Bill Arnold, and I'm back with the guys. We're having an extended version of Guy Talk, so if you're familiar with what happens on Thursdays around here on this show, we gather with some godly men and we sit and try to answer questions. So if you have a question, we'd love to hear whatever it is you have, 877-933-2484. And I'm with Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, we are in our extended version of Guy Talk. Always fun. Yeah. We're right before we went to break. We were talking about people wanting to hear from God more, and we were chatting about how God's word. We we, we would be the envy of first century Christians because we have the entire revealed word of God in our hands, right? We do, and we have copies of of it in our house for the most part, right? And we yep. can read it, and we can read it. Yes, yes. But I think there's a lot of people that would love a sort of a a word from God that might feel even a little extra biblical. I yep. think they go, how do I hear from God? And I go, well, the book is here. You can hear from him anytime you want. And, you know, sometimes the Lord will definitely, when we're reading the word, it will hit us. It'll be brand new. We'll get excited about it. But I had a, a, a Ugandan pastor who taught me a good lesson. Uh, he was a circuit writing pastor in Uganda. And he was in seminary with me. He came to do some Bible study. And we said, William, tell us about your worship service. You know, what do you do? And he said, well, we start at 7 in the morning, and we really don't get going until about 8 because people wander in. You know, and then we have time of praise, and then, then I share the word. And when I get done sharing the word, I say, okay, now go out in the village and do what the word of God says for the next six hours. Come back here at about 4 o'clock, and we'll talk about it and have dinner together. I think the mistake we make in Christianity is that we are not simply be hearers of the word. We're to hear it and then go do it. And the more, and the quicker you do it, and I will be honest about this, the quicker I do it, the more I hear from the Lord, seeing the reaction of people, seeing lives change, seeing the power of Jesus' work. Too often, though, I read it for study because I have to prepare all the time. And it doesn't have quite the same dynamic as when I go out and do it immediately. You know, one of the things that the Word has called us to do is to go share our faith, always be prepared to give an account, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to talk to others about Christ, to reveal Him, to be His ambassadors, to to reconcile the world to God as, as if He is making His appeal through us, and on and on and on and on. And one of the benefits, the personal benefits, Philemon 1.6 says, I pray that our partnership in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. As we share Christ, it blesses us so that you may know every good thing we have in Christ Jesus, Philemon says. And uh, and, and so being obedient is, is one way that we can then actually hear back from God because we are doing his will in this world. Yep. All right. Could you guys explain uh, the many names of the apostles, such as Levi slash Matthew, Nathaniel slash Bartholomew? They have, a lot of times there's, they're, re, they're referred to by a couple of names. Mm-hmm. Are these Hebrews, Hebrew names versus Greek names or what's going on? 
Well, the, God makes a big deal out of names throughout both the Old and the New Testament, and it seems that he likes to change names. So Abram became Abraham, uh, Sarai became Sarah, Saul became Paul, Simon became Peter, and and so on. Um, it's interesting because in Revelation, uh, God says that when Christ comes, he has a new name, and he's going to write on us his new name. So even Jesus has a new name that no one knows yet but himself, but will be revealed one day. And he says that we too, in Revelation, says that we will receive a new name. So the the wise question is always hard. Um, you know, Peter, when his name was changed at Caesarea Philippi, when he said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Uh, Peter says, you are the Christ the son of the living God, and he says, your name now will be Peter, which in the Greek is Petros. Petros or Petros? I always get these two confused, so I'm going to go with Petros. Your name is Petros, or small rock, and on this rock, Petros, meaning large stone, I will build my church. And he's saying, I don't think, uh, as some believe, that he was building his church on Peter. He's saying, no, Peter, you're the small stone that understood this, and I'm going to build my church on the large rock. Well, who's the large rock in Scripture over and over again? But Christ himself is the rock. Exactly. Um, Names had meaning in the Bible. They don't have as much meaning today. I mean, we were named when we were children, and I often ask my parents, well, where did I get the name Tom from? Well, it was my dad's brother, okay? But it, but it's not like it has a meaning that Tom means strong one who stands for the truth or anything like that, that I, I'm aware of. Do you know of. what it means? Yes, I do, in the, from the Bible. Yeah. But what, here's what we're talking about. Jeff means God's peace. Does it I really? love that. Yeah, Jeffrey means God's I peace. Like I like it. I like that a lot. Uh, well, everybody should look that up, you know, and find out what their name means because the Lord changed people's names for their purpose, not simply to give them a new name. And that's what he does to us. Do you know what Bill stands for? Protector. Protector. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's your idea, Thomas, what it stands for? Well, the most famous <laughs> Thomas is Doubter. The, the doubter. Um, I, I, I thought but I don't know that there. that's what that name yeah, means. It's, is it's that okay. what it means? Okay. It's okay. All right, I, I love this question. A friend <laughs> asked me, how do you know when you have a relationship with God? Well, that's not that difficult. Because your perspective is really what begins to change. First of all, many people have told me that for the first time in their life, after they received Jesus, they experienced peace in their heart. They always had turmoil. Um, So that's one way. The other way is just simply that it's declared that when you know the Lord, you know, you have that relationship. And that's what I count on because my emotions go up and down. But oftentimes it is, there is some form of peace that comes, there is new insight that comes, there is a confidence that comes. And what I don't see enough Christians getting is the confidence to know that they are the ambassadors of the gospel and they have a purpose in this world. Uh, When I see people that understand that and live that, I know that they have really connected with the Lord Jesus. Hmm. But whether you feel it or not, Take the word for what it says, that once you surrender to him, you're a new person. You know, I think understanding God's criteria for salvation, first and foremost, is is critical, uh, because then you can determine whether or not you have met that criteria. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so what is that criteria? Well, the, the jailer, we were talking about this before the show, actually, what, what did the jailer ask Paul? He said, what must I do to be saved? 
And Paul gave him a very simple answer, said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the question is, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now remember, belief, the fullness of that word in Greek is to believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. So have you entrusted the living, risen Jesus Christ for your salvation? And if you have, well, then he says, his promise is, I will put my spirit in you. And and scripture declares that his spirit will testify with your spirit that you are a child of God and have eternal life. Um, I think our doubt that we are saved, it's a funny thing about doubt. It's kind of the opposite of faith. And as I study God's word more, my faith grows and my doubt diminishes. And so I can know. You've touched on a really critical point, and I'll wrap this up here if I can. We, I often have Christians say to me, Pastor, but I only had more faith. That's a misunderstanding of biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't having more of it. That's why Jesus compared it to a mustard, mustard seed, seed, a very tiny seed. It is where you put that faith. If you put that faith in yourself or in what you're doing, you're going to go up and down and be all over the place. But the Bible says, put that faith in Jesus, and you'll have everything you need. And so that's biblical faith, getting out of yourself, putting that faith in Jesus, and saying, you're Lord, you do as you see fit, I'm depending on you totally. My guest, Jim Wallace, who comes on every month, he has this beautiful illustration. When he was in police academy, they take him down to the the gun range, and they put a, a bulletproof vest on a dummy, and then they shoot it, and then they can watch it happen and they can then understand and believe mm-hmm. that a bullet will be stopped by the vest. Then you have to put the vest on. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe be in a situation Ooh. where a gun goes off and there's a bullet coming your way. Yeah. Then you have to trust that it's going to stop. Maybe the next time I call people to faith at church, I'll use that <laughs> and bring out some bulletproof vests yeah. and see well, what they want to do. Peter yeah. got I out like of the it. boat, right? Peter got out of he the did. boat and walked on water, wow. mm-hmm. and he did it. Wow. All right, let's try to squeak uh, this one in. Why do you think Paul starts all of his 13 books with, I greet you in the name of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't believe ever includes the Holy Spirit? Well, the thing we have to understand is that the New Testament, the revelation of the Spirit and what was going on didn't just happen all at once for people. I mean, the day of Pentecost, yes, they spoke in tongues. Yes, 3,000 people were converted. Yes, things began to happen. But the understanding of who the Spirit was took some time. And not that Paul didn't understand that, but he understood that the Father and God the Son, Jesus, is what the Jewish culture really understood. Now, they had an understanding of the pneuma or the Spirit, but they didn't have it in the way it was finally displayed and talked about because it was looked at as the breath of God, almost as something just simply coming out rather than a distinct being who's part of the Trinity. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the why questions are always hard. Uh, Paul does talk about the Spirit often. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in I'm just kind of trying to think off the top of my head, but I, in virtually every book that I'm thinking of, he mentions the Spirit. And in fact, also he also closes often his letters yeah. with a reference to the Spirit, I believe, as well. So why the introduction? Um, I don't know. It's a great introduction, though, and that we should greet each other this way. Greetings in the name of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm all for it. I'm all for it too. We'll take a break. When we come back, lots more God talk. We've got another segment, so time for your question. 877-933-2484. Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn are my guests. 
Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Back with Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish. Great questions coming in. Thank you for your wonderful questions. This question is so sweet. I love this. Why won't God give me a hug or hold me in the flesh? I mean, there's someone who longs for connection and, and love and touch, and sometimes people just need arms around them. You know, I, I would love that, too. I would love him just to show up one night, throw his arms around me, and love me. It took me a long time, Bill, to come to understand that he does do that, but he uses his body, which is the church, mm-hmm. and through mm-hmm. other people. You know, when I come here and we have these discussions and we talk to one another both in break time and other, I come away feeling loved and refreshed and feeling I'm in the presence of the Lord Jesus and I think that most of us would like that divine experience where he just shows up. But the problem with that is, is that he's not going to show up every night that way. But we can show up that way to one another, and we need to be doing that. Yeah, if we are truly the body of Christ, Tom, as you said, then we, uh, is, I love the phrase, the continuing incarnation of Christ. Christ continues to be uh, uh, incarnate in this world through his body, the church, all those that are, have believed in him. He lives in and dwells in, and and so we are the body of Christ. So that if you want a hug from God, find a fellow believer and all the one another's in Scripture that says we should comfort one another and encourage one another. And 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 God says that we can comfort others with the very comfort that, that he has given to us because he is a God of comfort. Uh, so that hug from God, look for another believer, and you literally are receiving a hug from God. Mm. Yep. This comes up fairly regularly. People would like an explanation about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it's not that hard. Yeah, the, what the, in context, what was happening was that the Pharisees were ascribing Jesus' power uh, to uh, hell, Satan, mm-hmm. rather than God, and that was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, some will say that it can't be done today because Christ is not here, and therefore you cannot ascribe his power to one source of power versus another. Others will say that what you're really redoing, doing is rejecting the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's call to believe and be saved. So the, the unpardonable sin, if you will, or the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of the Holy Spirit's call to believe and be saved. I like that. I'll, I agree with Jeff on that. The problem is this is a passage that has not been well-defined over 2,000 years, and so we struggle with it, what that actually means. For me, the bottom line is this. Rejection of the call of Jesus is the worst thing we could ever do. Mm. I don't know of anything worse, and that's the one that is not forgiven if we don't respond to him. I agree, and by the, and so that what that means is that if you are a believer today and filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not possible for you to commit the unpardonable sin or to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in that way. No. If, if that, and I, and I, I, that, that's how I tend to view that. Mm-hmm. I agree. You're absolutely right. All right, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your 
direction for this next question. How transparent should a church be about its budget to its congregation? Totally honest. There should be nothing hidden. It should be out front because we are the body of Christ. Uh, because I'm a called pastor, doesn't mean that I have a special preemption to look over the money or the treasurer or the stewardship board. It should be available to anyone. And the more we can help people understand there is nothing hidden, the money goes where it's supposed to go, the more credibility we get when we talk about Jesus. I agree. Nicely done. All right, could you give insight on wheat and tares? 2 Corinthians 6. There are a number of passages in Scripture, that even that Jesus talks about, about separation, right? Um, separating the good from the bad, the, the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the tares, the wise from the foolish, and, and so on. So there's actually a, a lot of passages, and I, I think it goes right to the heart of the separation of man of the, between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many go through it. Narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life, and few go through it. Uh, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Uh, so often the wheat and the tares, there's actually a couple parables that use this imagery of the grain that will be harvested at the end of the day and brought into the barn. Those are good people or righteous people. And the tares or the the weeds that are intermixed amongst them that will be pulled up. And and by the way, unfortunately, the picture is always to be gathered up and burned, which is, I think, a picture of hellfire. You know, a very good teacher, and Jesus was the best teacher there ever was, and his apostles were excellent teachers too. You tell the same story or you tell the same truth, but use different illustrations. Weed and tares is no different than sheep and goats. It's the same concept and it's those who are with the Lord and those who are not with the Lord. It's that simple. All right, gentlemen, why did Jesus often talk in parables and not say things clearly? For example, when he was asked who he was, he often gave sort of a confusing-sounding response. Did he want to make it unequivocally clear that he is the Son of God and here to save us? You know, he he actually is clear in a number of places in Scripture, and he, he's crystal clear on who he is. Uh, and what he came to do. Uh, but there is, when he came to Israel, he did speak in parables. And actually, his disciples asked this question, and he actually answered it. He says, why do you speak to them in parables? He says, though seen, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. In them, it's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seen, but never perceiving. If you wanted to understand who this man is and follow him and what he's saying, you would understand. But if you're going to reject it, it's been hidden to them because he spoke in parables. We can understand it because now we're filled with the Spirit and can understand. But in their rejection, they weren't going to understand anyway. And I think that's uh, part of the reason, anyway, why he spoke in parables. It's also an incredibly good teaching method because right now I can go to my church and I can ask uh, a junior high kid, Tell me one of the parables of Jesus. And you know what? They can. But if I'd asked them to tell me about the seven I am statements of Jesus, the Gospel of John, which is very accurate and very true, they'd look at me with cross eyes. Parables are a powerful way of teaching. And that's why storytelling in preaching and teaching is so important because the story helps carry the communication of the facts. Mm. Yeah. So think of a secular parable of 
uh, say, the, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. Right? So we remember that story. We could probably recite most of it. But the principle is that slow and steady wins the race. And we remember that principle through the story. One of the disappointments I have is that this year I don't have access to a donkey. There have been many Palm Sundays. We've had donkey brought into the sanctuary. People are waiting live, for palms. Live donkeys? Live, live donkey. We've had to stall up front, left it in there the whole time. And I'll tell you the honest truth. People from 45 years ago when I started doing this with donkeys and camels and sheep and that type of thing have said to me, I've never forgotten that. I can still see it, and I know the message of what it was that Jesus came in to die for our sins. The visualization. And stories are actually audible visualizations that enable us to remember, and it's a great tool. We have some restrictions here at Faith Radio about <laughs> what gets led in the building. Just so you know, I don't, What's I don't, outside the door over the there. I don't lot. need any camels over here, Tom. All right, what happens to babies who die in the womb? And what about adults with cognitive disabilities? Does Jesus keep them safe and bring them to the Father? This is one that many have lamented that they wish there was more information on in Scripture. We have one story of David when his newborn baby dies at a very young age and he laments, but then he stops mourning and people come to him and said, why have you stopped mourning? And he says, well, now my child is dead. There's nothing I can do. And he says, besides, I will see him again. Now, I think that's an indication that David, who clearly is righteous, a man after God's own heart, would see his newborn baby again. Um, Some call it the age of accountability, where God will start holding someone accountable for what they believe or don't believe. Um, but that's actually not in Scripture either specifically, but I think the concept is that there's some point where God will hold an individual accountable for what they believe or don't. Babies couldn't, and and most Christians believe that unborn babies or babies that die or even adults that don't have the mental capacity to believe will be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, a, as a human being. Go ahead. Would you just pray for the people who have lost yep. children? I sure will. And we'll wrap it up. Lord Jesus, you know the heartache of losing a child, mm. whether in the womb, born early, something went wrong in the early years. You know the pain, Lord, and you know what people go through. But Lord, you are all merciful, and you know every one of those children by name, and they are going to be with you, Lord, I believe forever. So bring comfort to these families. Help them to know their child is not lost. But they will see them again in the kingdom of God. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Yeah, I just felt the urgency to pray there. So thank you for that. Gentlemen, it's uh, been a beautiful uh, time to be uh, here with you as we're anticipating next week, uh, Holy Week. And I'm looking forward, Jeff, for your uh, teaching and our gathering again next uh, Thursday for more Guide Talk. So that's it for now. But we are going to take a break and come back. Dr. Ann Bradley, one of my favorite economists, is going to talk and answer some of my questions about what am I hearing about Banks failing. That seems kind of odd. Anyway, we'll find out more about that when she uh, comes on the program in just a minute. Show with Bill Arnold. 
If you just joined the program, I'm so glad that you did, and thank you for tuning in. I'm talking now to Dr. Ann Bradley. She is a professor, an economist, she's an author, and she's a regular guest on the show. And I always learn so much when she comes on, and I don't know if I'm always asking all the good questions, but she has always good answers. So, Ann, welcome back. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, I've just been hearing, because I really don't consume much news anymore. I stopped doing that about six, seven months ago, and my life is considerably happier. Um, Yes. Yeah, but I'm hearing people talk in conversation about banks that are failing. I'm thinking, Mm. failing banks? What? How can that be? And I know that there are banks that are insured, but uh, what is going on? I think it's happening out west, isn't it, in particular? Yes. So you're you're right. I, I just want to start by saying I think we would all leave happy lead happier lives. <laughs> we probably consumed less news um, because I think it gets overwhelming. So I think that's a good choice. Um, but to the bank failures, so so the you know kind of this has raised a lot of eyebrows and of course creates lots of worries uh, for all of us uh, for American citizens in terms of what happened first with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, with what we kind of typically call a bank run. Um, and the question that people have when, you know, all of these investors and, and um, these uh, bank customers pull their money out of the bank at the same time, no bank is able to kind of w- withstand that uh, because they don't have enough money at any given time to just kind of make sure everybody simultaneously gets whatever they have in the bank. And so this can lead to it, when the confidence in the bank and their investments is rattled, which is exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Then everybody goes and says, hey, I want my money. And Uh when that happens, um, in this case, the bank um, was under the threat of losing um, its its rating by Moody's. And so this then kind of exacerbated the problem because when the word hit the street that that was happening, um, then more people go to the bank and say, knock, knock, I want my money. And so, you know, the question about this, and with Signature Bank, which is another bank run. And you're right, it's happening out west. These are very, I think, idiosyncratic cases. I don't think we need to be worried about a full-scale. Yes, I don't think we're kind of back in the 30s, right, where we were seeing full-scale bank runs that were associated with the Great Depression and all the things that were were happening at that time. So these were are very specific types of banks, and I think what happened – is that they made really bad financial investment decisions. And so when you choose a bank, that requires a lot of trust, right? Because we're putting our hard-earned paychecks into that bank, and we are asking that bank to be available for us, to provide financial services for us. Um, And, of course, we have to be worthy of those, right, if you want to get a loan from your bank, all these types of things. Mm -hmm. And so for the bank to be able to do that and also to make money, the bank has to have a wise and uh, a raid portfolio to be able to do that. And in the case of, of this bank in particular, this was kind of a tech startup bank, and all the customers were very much the same. Oh. Yes. So it was not really that surprising that everybody kind of uh, came calling at the same time. But it's also the case that the bank really just didn't have the right mix of um, investments and, and the way they were holding their capital uh, I think, you know, had a long-term maturity rate. And if everybody is coming knocking today, but you're not going to make money on your assets for a couple of years mm-hmm. and you're kind of making that risk, it's a risky decision. And so I think this is, like I said, it's not systemic. I think it's idiosyncratic. I think people are worried. And I think that there's reasons for us to be worried 
about monetary policy and, as I've talked about before, fiscal policy. It's not just one or the other. I think we should be concerned about both, but I don't think we're on the edge you know, of a banking collapse. Oh, and good. so I want to assure you and others that I don't think that's what we're seeing here at the moment. Good, because I've seen It's a Wonderful Life, and there's chaos in the bank that day. Chaos in the bank that day. And we don't want to live in that world, no, right? No, we are, don't. We don't. There are countries, and this is, you know, this is what their central banks will do. When they get to a crisis, they actually say, okay, you can't take any more than what might be equivalent to $200 out of the bank. And people literally line up at the ATMs. Uh, because, you know, the, the central bank is trying to ward off uh, a complete monetary crisis. We're not there. Um, the U.S. banking system has been fairly stable. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve you know, doesn't want that to happen. So there's good incentives for that not to happen. But it tells us as consumers we need to be careful about where we bank. Um, you know, I think a lot of what happens in these tech startups and these kind of uh, very high, highly stylized banks with very specific customers is that everybody's pursuing these kind of shiny objects, right? And so it's less like traditional banking. My friend David Bonson said, Signet, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, not your grandmother's bank, yeah. right? So it's kind of anti-traditional, and, and I think that can look like a bright, shiny object, but then this can happen. And so you, we need to be very wise and prudent about where we choose to, to kind of house our money. Yeah, so if you're not watching news, which is me, and you hear friends talking about banks collapsing, it does kind of alarm you a little bit. So thank you for calming down my jagged nerves. <laughs> yeah, no jagged nerves for that. Oh, good. And, but here's the thing. I do think we need to be aware, especially as Americans. I talk to my students about this all the time. I think it's easy for Americans to believe we're the leader of the world. Everybody kind of looks to the United States. Many people want to come here and live here. It's a great place. And I think we can get lazy in that idea, right, that it's just always going to be a great place and nothing bad will ever happen. And if we don't pursue principled policies um, based on the realities of the world, the realities of markets, et cetera, then we could really get into very, very bad situations. And so we're not just there's just no economic destiny. Right. And we can lose what we have. And that's why I think we need to be very vigilant about the policies we pursue. And I think that's why you and I have these conversations because it's important to kind of try to understand what is the right way forward. What should we be doing? What shouldn't we be doing? Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She is a professor and author. And we are students. Are they encouraged about their futures? And will they be able to buy a starter house? I think that students in general, what I'm seeing is that they're still optimistic. I don't think they have a kind of a complete doom and gloom type of attitude about the future. Um, I think that they do have worries about the future. I'm not sure what they're worried about sometimes, to be honest with you, but I do think, you know, homeownership, where their biggest worry for college students is, am I going to get a job and what is it going to be? And then I think their second worry becomes, am I going to be able to afford to live where I need to live to get that job? Um, So, for example, I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia, and I went to graduate school here. And it was a very expensive place to live as a graduate student. It's also a very expensive place to live as a young professional. So you're not going to be buying even a townhouse, I don't think, right now in your 20s um, with an initial salary. So I think we need to really encourage our students to kind of address your question about a starter home, to really be prudent savers, 
to think about investments, to think very early about 401ks. You know, that's down the road, but they need to think about it now. But I do think they're optimistic about the future. I think that they, you know, they want to do well. They want to have a good life. Sometimes I think what they're worried about, maybe they should be more worried about, you know, when am I going to be able to buy a house and less worried about some of the things I see them worried about, which includes kind of apocalyptic visions of kind of environmental destruction and things like this. So Mm -hmm. they are worried about those things. And sometimes I think maybe the emphasis of the worry um, is not always realistic, but they're young students and they're just coming out into the world. So, you know, they're going to have to learn how to balance all these risks. Mm-hmm. I have an economics professor as my guest right now. So if you have, if you have a question, text it over 877-933-2484. My guest is Dr. Ann Bradley. So, Ann, uh, we haven't chatted in a little while, so I, I do miss having you on the program. I'd, I'd love you on more often. But when I when I look at what's happening in with our economy right now, are things getting a little bit better? Are you feeling more optimistic? Uh what, what's your take on what's going on right now? So I think it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag. I think there's some, there's, so you know me, uh, I'm always a believer in hope. Mm-hmm. Um, everything can be turned around. There, there can be redemption in the economy. There can re- be redemption in policy. There can, it, we can turn these things around. There are things I think we should kind of be worried about. Um, people are still talking about the R word. We, you and I have been talking about recession for a long time and economists are still kind of debating what's going to happen into the future. And, and what I you know, kind of say all the time is the gift that economists have is not a crystal ball, which is unfortunate because it would be nice. If we could just say, do this. And I mean, these good things will happen. And, and that type of thing. Um, we don't know exactly what the future holds, but if we look at things like employment, uh, the unemployment numbers are really good. It's about 3.6%. Inflation has come down. It's still around 6.6%, so it's higher than we want it to be. It's higher than what the Fed kind of says is their target. And so what we're seeing, and, you, and I have talked about this a lot, is just con- you know constant Fed rate hikes to try to deal with this. Um, and frankly, I think that that was brought on by years of pursuing kind of almost zero interest rates. And so I think we should be worried about that. I think one of the worries that I have about monetary policy into the future is that the Fed has become very politicized. That's not new, but I think mm-hmm. we're seeing some of the evidence of that. Uh, I think it got worse after the financial crisis of 08. And so this is a, something we should be worried about because it means that um, whoever who's in the president, you know, kind of the dominant voices of Congress are going to be able to manipulate monetary policy in an undue way. This is not the way um, that the Fed was chartered. And, and so it really, we really want it to be a depoliticized independent institution. So I think that does bode concerns for me into the future. Um, and I think, you know, when we look at um, spending bills and budget projections that, you know, in, uh, the Biden administration has, uh, uh, you know, kind of floated another budget proposition that I think includes lots of new spending and doesn't uh, call for the reduction of any programs, and, you know, this is historically what Republicans and Democrats have both been doing over time. And so we have to get our fiscal house in order if we want a growing economy. And, you know, we all want to live in a growth economy. We don't yeah. want to live in a stagnant economy no. or, you know, a declining economy. We mm. want growth. So we have to get the right policies in place. Yeah. And here's a listener question. What's your view on the viability of the Bank of Japan currently? 
Well, I have to be honest that I don't know enough, I think, <laughs> to answer that question. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one thing that just to kind of try to address what I can, I think um, what we're seeing in Japan, you know, Japan was kind of one of the Asian tigers after World War II. It just got this massive economic growth. Um, it became, um, you know, a fully developed economy with lots of prosperity. And what we're seeing right now is is uh, some slowdown in in. J- Japanese productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know how to tie that explicitly to kind of the banking policy, so I just don't know enough to answer that question well. But I think, you know, this is an example of when you have soaring economic growth for a long time, and then you kind of um, sputter out a little bit. I think Japan needs to really look at its economic freedom score. It's not in the top, you know, five, not in the top 10. And so certainly there are things that if I knew more, I would advocate, you know, um, directionally more specific, but I think the answer is always how can we reconcile what the central bank is doing against what economic freedom would call for, which is you know a very sound monetary policy that's going to have all these other ripple effects in the economy, which includes worker productivity, investment, all those types of things that we care about. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. If you have a question for Ann about economics, let me know what it is. 877-933- 2484. We'll take a short break and be right back with Anne in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Dr. Ann Bradley, and we're talking economics. So if you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. Here's another question, Ann. Do you see the U.S. losing the preferred currency standing? I think that um, this is a risk that we run and that we have to be really careful about it. We meaning, you know, obviously, this is not in our, it's not in your hands, it's not in my hands, and this is kind of both the blessing and the curse. Um, so we want an independent, depoliticized, as I mentioned, central bank. Um, but the Federal Reserve is becoming less of that. And so the more it engages in what kind of is, has classically been fiscal policy, the more it is going to become politicized. So during, and like I said, this started really to this kind of unorthodox approach of the Fed, I think really gained permissibility, if you will, um, in the financial crisis of 2008. And I think it got worse during COVID. And I think this threatens um, the position of the U.S. dollar in the world. Um, and so this is always, though, I will say a relative question, right? The dollar is strong relative to what? And so you know, our strength is also tied to the strength of other nations. But the, the, the policy of um, kind of expansionary monetary policy that's not based on rules, as Milton Friedman would have recommended, but is based on discretion. This is why Friedman thought that was dangerous, because the discretion becomes, well, at whose discretion Mm -hmm. and when, right? And what is allowed? And so the more we 
change liquidity really quickly. We use a crisis as an example. These types of things. I mean, the Fed was pursuing zero interest rates for a long time and basically being technocratic about its management of the money supply. And now I think, you know, kind of people are scratching their heads and saying, well, why is it taking so long to get inflation under control? And I think this is the reason that we don't want to do that. We want to pursue generalized rules because it really ties the hands of the central bank. So I do think that this is a threat into the future. But again, it can be redeemed based on the pursuit of our monetary policy. And that depends on Who's running the Fed? The problem with this is that I don't really see a shift away from the overly politicized Fed into the future. Something is going to have to change in terms of the values of the people that are appointed to those positions and Mm -hmm. commitment, right, to rules over discretion. And we haven't really seen that for a long time. And I think political events allow, you know, kind of allow people to relax their standards, if you will. They permit more than they would outside of a crisis. Um, And, you know, the thing that keeps the dollar uh, very valuable um, as a form of exchange, as a currency that people want to hold, is the behavior of the central bank, because that's what is going to establish its value on the international market. So we want to really, really protect that. But I, I think, you know, as you and I have talked about many times before, these are principled arguments and principle has to trump politics because today's crisis becomes tomorrow's tyranny is is the way I think about it, right? What we're afraid of today is what we permit the government more and more ability to control tomorrow in the name of kind of fixing the crisis. And I think that's what we should be worried about into the future because there will be another crisis, the financial crisis, COVID, we don't know what's next. But uh, uh, the antidote to all of this is a sound, thriving, growing economy. That's the antidote. And so we need to put policies into place that allow us to have that, because that's what's going to allow us to to ride out the next storm and not be crushed or defeated by it. Mm -hmm. It's really important to get our principles in order as we move into the future. My smart guest is Dr. Ann Bradley. We're talking about the economy and question that came in and is money in the u.s still backed by gold so we there's this is if you want to get into the weeds about monetary policy we left the gold standard and so the united states does not use that policy and one of the issues around that um and you know one of the things that i've been talking about are constraints maybe i haven't used that word but what we think about the arenas in which we need the government to control things, you know, arenas where where the market can't do it. You have to have the government do it. The government needs to be constrained. And the reason for that is because the government has legitimate power. We give it that power. And so this is another concern with central banks, central banks that are backed, their currencies are backed by gold. What does that do? It acts as a constraint. It limits your ability to inflate the currency just by printing it or kind of, you know, open market operations, things like this. And so there's a lot of, I think, really strong arguments for a return to the gold standard, which would put those natural constraints into place. And it would just limit the ability of the central bank to engage in inflationary policies that, you know, kind of lead to lots of financial chaos in the markets. And so um, the U.S. at one point was on the gold standard, and it is not today. Mm-hmm. And a uh, listener said, I just heard that China and Brazil are going forward on not using the American dollar as their standard. 
And so this is another kind of issue. We, the, the dollar is only as valuable as the demand for it. And so we can think about the demand for dollars like we can think about the demand for pizza. <laughs> it's not exactly the same, right? But people only want to eat pizza that tastes good, satisfies their hunger, all those types of things. And so people can hold a variety of different currencies. And so when major banks or, or, or countries say they're not going to kind of accept U.S. dollars or remit U.S. dollars, things like this, then you start to have this. This is where people have lots of questions and concerns about the viability of the U.S. dollar into the future. Because, again, if the demand to hold the U.S. dollar drops, what does that mean? It means the value of the U.S. dollar is declining and people are going to hold other currencies or gold or other types of assets. Um, And so we want to be the world currency of reserve. That is a desired position that we've had for a very long time. So these types of things uh, are something that we really want to keep an eye on, you know, and ask questions about, well, why are, why are um, these decisions being made? Why are people walking away um, from the dollar? But the flip side of that is this, when countries are having their own financial crises, a lot of times what they will do is adopt the U.S. Um, dollar, or they will pursue the same um, policies as the United States Central Bank. And that is kind of an import, can be an important commitment device. So sometimes when we see, you know, kind of other countries saying, OK, we're going to accept the inflation rates of the U.S. Federal Reserve, that's a commitment to their kind of conservative bank policies in their own countries. And so that's really something that we watch as well. How many people make that commitment um, to kind of dollarize their economies? That's a strong signal that's sent to the United States about the value and the integrity of the U.S. dollar. So that's really very precious thing that we don't want to lose. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of consumer questions. I know as an economist, this may not be your your field of expertise. I probably need a financial advisor to answer these next couple of questions, but here they are anyway. What do you think, Ann, about paying with cash versus debit cards and, of course, credit cards? Should we be using cash more often? I really, you know, so it's good to point out that I'm not a financial advisor right. um, because I am definitely not. Um, and, you know, I think that it's it's a lot of um, ease. Ease is the reason that people are going away from cash. I think that the use of a debit card allows you to essentially pay with cash without having to have cash on your person. And so there's a convenience, um, you know, kind of um, motive there for people. Um, I think credit cards can also be very valuable for people. First of all, you need to have a credit score that's good because that is what's going to allow you to get a house, to get a loan, to buy a car, even to get a cell phone. So I think having credit cards and having and allowing yourself to build good credit through those credit cards is really important. But one of the things we're seeing right now is um, credit card interest rates are really going up. I think I just read that the average is about 11%. Um, And so you don't want to use credit cards as kind of, um, pretend cash. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we don't want to just pretend, you know, say, oh, I have a credit card and I just opened it, it has a $20,000 limit. And so now I have $20,000. No, you don't. And so that's how people get into a lot of trouble. And so credit is something we have to be very careful about. So I don't think we need to walk away from um, credit or credit cards or, or ATM cards. But I think always the, the sage advice is we shouldn't spend more than we can afford. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes credit cards or getting a loan, right? Taking a home equity loan, there's something wrong with that. 
if you can be prudent about it. Right. But if you take a hundred thousand dollar, you know, kind of loan against your house and then you kind of like use it on vacations, you don't have anything and you need to sell your house, this can be really a problem for people. So I think it's more about just being conservative and prudent and saving, not just kind of overspending now. Now that's easy to say and hard to do when we've been dealing with inflation for a long time now and Really, we got battered in the employment sector during COVID. So mm-hmm. it, it's, sometimes people have to rely more on credit uh, during those times of, of t- you know, crisis times. And that's what it's there for. But I, don't, I just think we need to be very careful about how we use credit. Mm-hmm. And I wish that we had more time. A question just came in about the impact of the energy policy on, on our economy. And if you want to try to cover it in 20 seconds, twenty seconds. feel free. Okay, so the, the short answer is that... Energy is going to be a pressing problem into the future because as, as population grows and as we get economic growth, there's lots of demand for energy. So we need more, 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 and we need it to be cheaper and we need it to be more efficient. So I'm, an, I'm a supporter of any kind of policy that allows that to happen. I think we need to trade more. I think we need to find more. And I think we need to innovate more. So if I was kind of president for a day and I was charged with reshaping energy policy, that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Reduce the constraints, make it easy for people to discover more energy, but also innovate so that we have more hybrid forms of energy that take us into the future. I still have like five more questions. We're out of time. So please come back and we'll do this again. I would love to. Thanks, Thanks for Anne. having me. Have a great evening. You too. You bet. Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. That's our show for the day. Thank you to the guys for a wonderful guide talk and Dr. Ann Bradley is being an amazing guest. So many good questions came in. Thank you for listening to my show today and for supporting Faith Radio. I hope you heard Carmen and Susie today and all the other shows that are on Faith Radio. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.